But who are you? Who are you? It's a weighty question. What is your identity? Even as you begin to kind of compute how you would answer that question, your heart and mind start wrenching and reeling. But it's a question that we're all wrestling through whether we realize it or not. We all operate and function. We all make decisions. We all behave in a certain way. We all think a certain way because of something that has to do with who we think we are. So the entire network of your decisions and your decision making is being framed by your identity. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, then your identity what was, was what was established in the first 12 verses of 1 Peter. Peter established that you have been saved by a great and glorious salvation, and that is um, reason for you to praise God. He's, been, he's given you a new beginning, a living hope. Um, he's given you reason to rejoice in suffering. He's placed you in a story that's bigger than yourselves, a story that he's been writing for millennium. And so that is your identity, the story of God's salvation of you and including you in the story of Jesus to restore all things, that is your identity. So having established that identity, what Peter's going to do now is he's going to launch into what things should mark your life if your identity is in Jesus. If that's your story, then what does your life look like? So Peter moves from identity to activity. Identity to activity. And here's the first important point that we must make right up front. Okay? What you do as a Christian will flow out of who you are as a Christian. This order is so, so important for you to understand. What you do flows out of who you are. And because Jesus has come to make a new people... He's making you a new person. He's changing your identity from your deadness and sin to life in him. This is why your activity changes. He's not simply here to change your activity or your behavior, make you obey, make you do all the rules. He is changing who you are as a person. He's changing your identity. And then Peter, what he says then is, this will change your activity. One way to see how you have... One, a new identity in Jesus, not by your own merits, but by the merits of Jesus. One way to see that in your life is by how you act. But this order is so, so important because we're going to talk a lot, of, lot tonight about what you should do. We're going to talk a lot tonight about things that you should be doing as a, as a follower of Jesus. But you have to understand this is coming out of your identity. This is something that concerns your heart, your desires, your loves. So we have a really long passage tonight, but we're going to break it down and uh, simplify it. So don't be alarmed. But first, let me pray, okay? Father, we are in this room to glorify you. Lord, we've done that through song. We've done that through hanging out with one another, encouraging one another, hopefully. We've done that as we've sat under a public reading of your scripture and Lord, now we sit here under your word to understand it, but also have it applied to our lives so that we can live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. 
So God, we ask your blessings on this time. Uh, rid any distraction that is in this room. And God, cause these students and myself to stay focused on you and your good news in Jesus. We ask all this in your name. Amen. All right, so we're going to work through this big, long passage, okay? Um, starting in verse 13. Verse 13, we're going to go all the way through 2-3, okay? And I'll, I'll explain why we're doing a big section uh, after. Verse 13, try to follow along here. Therefore, and again, this is therefore, that's linking it back to the whole previous section. It's saying, because of who you are in Jesus, this, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former old ways, your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus, him, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly, purely, sincerely, with great conviction from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice, put away all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, like I said, this is a long passage, and typically we've been focusing on like one to two verses at a time. But it's good for us sometimes, like we do when we soap. We read a whole chapter, right? And then we zone in on one, one verse. It's good to train ourselves to actually digest long passages. Because what it does is it will actually train us to catch the overarching tone. Or really, what is he getting at? Why is he saying things here? And because Peter begins and ends this passage in similar ways, I think it's good for us to look at the whole thing. And it's good to train us so that we don't trail off and dig into um, maybe rabbit trails, but we actually see what the main point of what he's getting at is. So the main point of all of this was be who you are. Be who you are. If you are a follower of Jesus, then be like that. Live in a way that's in accordance with that. And he gives four commands 
that help us see that. Four commands throughout this big, long passage. And so we're going to focus on those four commands. The first one is have a mindset of future grace. Have a mindset of future grace. We saw that um, right in the first verse of the passage. But the first activity of your identity as a Christian concerns the fact that God's not done with you yet. God is not finished with you. You are not yet perfect. You have not yet arrived. In verse 13, what he, what he says is, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. God is still going to have some work to do with you. He has started a process that's not yet done. It's not yet completed. And Peter says, this is the first thing you need to remember about your Christian identity, is that the best is yet to come. A lot of times as Christians, we, we talk about our Christianity as something that happened to us in the past. But what Peter sees is something of a new path where you will be led to a new destination. So he says, keep your eyes on the future. That's the first activity you need to have as a Christian. Have future grace. So God has begun a process in you of renewing you. It started through Jesus. And it's going to one day be brought to completion where you will be fully glorified. You'll be fully made new. The struggles that you're having will not be struggles anymore because God will consume all things and you will be made to be like Jesus. So that's the first thing you need to understand. The first activity for you as a Christian is that you're always looking forward. You're knowing that God's grace is full and it's in the future. So practically speaking, this means that you need to embrace the process. Embrace the process. You know, most of the things in life, most of the most important things in life are on the back end of a process. A lot of, um, a lot of the things we think about are so important in the Christian life, sometimes we think they just suddenly happen, right? It's just this miraculous moment. But some of the most important things in life come at the back end of a slow, gradual process. If you think about, when I think of a process that was slow, gradual, but was very important, I think of Steph's pregnancy. Like this baby growing inside her one day at a time, Hudson or Emmy. And you know, it's like you follow it on the app. It's like they have eyelashes now. I don't know why we know that, but they have eyelashes now and they have fingernails and now they're going to the bathroom in there somehow. I don't know, it's weird. I don't know what's going on. But it's a, it's a crazy process. But at the, it's day-by-day day growth that ends in something miraculous almost. So, or you guys may think of like high school graduation, college graduation, right? Sometimes it feels like the daily grind of um, going to class, doing assignments, doing the homework. But at the back end of this process is something we celebrate, graduation. Hopefully for everyone here we can celebrate graduation. Right? Um, or the driver's test, driver's license. There is a process for you to get a driver's license, a good process. Um, you know, you've got, I guess, you take driver's ed at 14 and a half, so you go sit in the class. They don't show red asphalt three anymore? That's a shame. Google it, I'm sure it's out there. <laughs> Red Asphalt 3. It was like all this, uh, this stuff with bad accidents. It was supposed to deter you from driving bad. 
But you would go through all these rules. You would learn the road signs, right? You'd take the test. You'd get the permit. You'd drive. I guess you have a certain amount of hours that you have to drive now. I didn't have that. We just, you're just like, just ride with somebody. Um, but hopefully, you know, you get the driver's license. Unlike me, it took me three times to pass the test. It was just stupid. But I have my license now. <laughs> um, but if you think about it, right? Shh, let's bring it back in. Bring it back in. A lot of the most important things in life come at the back end of a process. They don't just happen immediately. They are something that you have to work at day after day. And sometimes you don't see the growth happening day after day, but you are growing. It's wild to me. Like, I can't sit and watch Hudson. He's two and a half. I can't just sit there and stare at him and see him grow, right? First of all, weird, creepy person. What are you doing, Dad? I'm watching you grow, son. <laughs> but looking back over time, I know that he has grown, right? It, but it's those day to day, he's continually growing. Um, our Christian life is a lot like that. Now, the important thing about our Christian life that distinguishes itself from these other processes is that we, while we may be susceptible to failure, right? We may fail the driver's ed test. We may stop going to classes. We may whatnot. Jesus is not susceptible to failure with our process. God has put us into a process that he is faithful to complete. In Philippians 1, uh, Paul writes, he says, every good work that he has started in you, he will bring to completion. The good work God has started in you is not a process that he's going to give up on. It's a process he has committed himself to, and he will see you be made new. So we have full confidence in the process, and that process is being made more and more like Jesus, because Jesus has already proclaimed victory. There is no failure. There is no opportunity for failure because Jesus has already accomplished it. So we're simply living out the life of Jesus. So we can embrace the process, the day-to-day -day grind of being made more and more like Jesus because we know that Jesus is in, in charge of our destiny. Jesus is the king of the universe, and he calls us um, his save, uh, our savior. So we place our hope fully on Jesus, not on our ability to know certain things, not on our ability to consistently obey, but fully on Jesus so always remind yourself of the gospel. When, when Peter's talking about having future grace, you're reminding yourself of Jesus and the victory he's won so that you can be reassured of that past event but also look forward with confidence. That's important, one of the most important activities you can do as a Christian. All right, so there's a second command in here. Number two, be holistically holy. Be holistically holy. You guys know what the word holistic means? It's in like in all of your conduct. In all of your conduct. But the second activity of the Christian life is one that concerns our holiness. So Peter writes in verse 15 that Christians are to be holy in all their conduct. So what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be holy? I want you guys to take... 
two to three minutes around your table. I want you to answer this question. What does it mean to be holy? Figure something out. Go. said blameless okay okay so blameless so maybe some purity okay give me some on that anybody else want to add to that Bailey Jimbo you guys got anything back there extremely spiritual okay can you laugh what about you ladies? Anna, Caitlin, Bailey? Did you get anything? <laughs> what did you say? To be made in the image of God. Okay, okay. What did you guys got? Set apart? That's like the theological precision. Set apart, okay. Did you guys, that's what you said? You just said set apart? Okay. So the actual etymology of the word, like the basic construction of the word, does mean to be set apart, right? Something that is holy is like set apart, it's sacred, and it's set apart for a different purpose. But when we talk about God's holiness, and when scripture talks about God's holiness, the passage that Bailey read, Isaiah 40, what was kind of the major theme of Isaiah 40? God is, it talks about his holiness, but it's in conjunction with his uniqueness, saying there's no one like God. There is no one like God. So when we talk about God's holiness, he is so set apart. He is so utterly unique. That's what we're getting at when we talk about God's holiness. There's no one like him. There's no one who has the capacity um, of power that he has. So no one has the understanding, the wisdom his ability to create, to, de, to um, design what is good and evil. No one else has that. God is completely set apart in that regard. So when we are called to be holy, we are simply trying to be conformed to the character of God. Okay, so when we're called to be holy, we're simply trying to be conformed to the character of God. We're trying to reflect his character. We are trying to conform our lives to point to him. And so two things result from this, from us seeking to be holy. Number one, we will be more like Jesus. And number two, we will be set apart from the ways of the world and our former selves. If you seek holiness, you will become more and more like Jesus. Also, you will be more and more different from your former self and the ways of the world. And listen, when we talk about that, like you're set apart from the world, we're not talking like physically or superficially, like 
you know, the world wears fanny packs. We don't wear fanny packs around here. I know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? We're not talking about that superficial stuff. We're talking about the world. The world has a set of values. The world loves certain things. It worships things that do not honor God. They're living for themselves and not for God. We're talking about that. We're set apart from that type of worldliness. That we do not identify with those things anymore. So we will become more and more different from those sets of values and beliefs. And again, one of the important things about this is that holiness needs to be applied to all of your conduct. Every area of your life should be submitted to honoring God, to reflecting his character. Because us, we're really good at like playing the holiness game with like, well, I don't cuss. I don't see those type of movies. I don't listen to that type of music, right? We have like all the, or it's like, I'm not sleeping with my girlfriend. I'm not getting drunk on the weekends. That's how we start thinking about holiness. But what about your heart? What about how you talk about people? What about what you want to do with your free time? What about the fact that you haven't cracked your Bible in two months? What about the fact that you don't want to pray or you only fake pray? Right? What about the fact that you haven't said an encouraging word to someone in three months? What about the fact that you just continue to use your friends as jokes so that you can boost your self-esteem? Right? There's, there's every area and crevice of our life that should be submitted to the fact that God is utterly unique. And our lives should reflect how good, gracious, just, and perfect He is. Every aspect of our life. So we have to think holistically about holiness. Because, guys, it's easy to kill the sins in your life that are looked down upon in society. It's easy just to kill sins in your life that make you feel guilty or uncomfortable. Those are the easy sins. It, it, you feel guilty every time you look at pornography. So you want to get rid of that sin for that purpose. But the, but the bad thing about that is you're not doing that out of a desire to please God. You're doing that out of a desire for you not to feel guilty. You just don't want to be uncomfortable. Right? So... We have to start hating sin for the sin, not simply hating things that make us feel uncomfortable or, or make our friends who are Christians say, that's not right. So all I'm saying is every aspect of your life, what's that corner of your life, that closet that you don't let God into? What part of your life are you not submitting to God? And the call here from Peter is a Christian and all of his or her conduct submits that to being holy, set apart. Third command, love one another earnestly. And again, that word earnestly means with conviction, with true sincerity. This isn't fake love. This is real love, a care and concern for their well-being that equips them to glorify God. So Peter says that your Christian identity entails a mindset of future grace, a, a holistic commitment to holiness, and it's also a sincere expression of love to one another. And so, again, we talk about this a lot. Your Christian life is wrapped up in community. You, you cannot think of yourself as a Christian only in an individual 
legalistic way. God sees you as a member of the body of Christ. And we'll talk a lot about this next week where um, Peter compares us to a temple. And basically all of us are one brick in a great temple that is housing God's presence and proclaiming how good and great he is. But our lives are wrapped up in community. And so with this, we have to be defined by love for one another. Verse 22, Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Notice that pure love only flows from a pure heart. If you want to purely, truly love someone, it has to be from your heart. That's the kind of love we're called to have for one another in this room. Something about your experience also, something about your experience of God's love, having received God's love, then turns into an expression of God's love. If you have totally and erratically been saved by a loving father, and now your identity is wrapped up in you being his child, you will reflect that same love to other people, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. So there should be no issue with you having a true desire to love your brothers and sisters in Christ if you have a true love from God. This is what happens. So um, if you're reborn... The essence of your life has now been defined by love, right? Love has now taken over your deadness and reshaped your life to point to God. And he's done this through his love. Something that happens to you then turns into something that you express. And I know this will sound a little crazy, but this is a way that you breathe eternity into your relationships. Like you are actually breathing eternity into your relationships. One of the things that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13 says, faith will fade away, hope will fade away, but love will never end. The only thing that will last in your relationships with people is your love for them. If you love people well, you're making an eternal investment in your relationship with them. Only your love for one another will last. And it will last into eternity. All right, number four, the last command. He gives it uh, here. Crave new life nourishment. Crave new life nourishment. This last commandment, these last few verses, provide a great summary. And it's why I wanted us to work through this whole passage tonight, because I think it brings it full, full back around to this whole idea of be who you are. Live out what God has placed in you. So Peter is commanding Christian activity out of their identity. He says, put away all malice, put away deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And he says, instead, like newborn infants, long for spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And he says, this will happen if you've tasted that the Lord is good. So notice, he's calling Christians to act a certain way, but he drives it deeper to hit on your desires. Saying, if you want to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, you don't be marked by those things anymore, then your desire has to be renovated. 
to long for things that will help you grow. If you want to change your behavior, then you're going to have to desire the right things. And then he drives it even further and says that this all depends on an experience of God's love. He says, if if you want to put away this bad behavior, then you have to have good desires. And you will have those desires if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, listen. Tasting that the Lord is good is different than just knowing that the Lord is good or believing that the Lord is good. There's a difference between knowing that honey is sweet and tasting honey. There is a difference in that experience. And so what Peter is saying is, is if you've had the experience where you've tasted the Lord's goodness, you've experienced and encountered how good and great he is in the good news of Jesus, this will work in you new desires for pure spiritual milk that will help you grow. And this will also equip you to put away malice, envy, slander, bad things that should not mark your life. So if you've indeed experienced the Lord's goodness, then Peter says you will crave the type of nourishment. You'll crave the things that you need, and you'll put away things that does not nourish you to grow.